following message was given by Robert Green on Sunday, February 5th at Redemption Hill Church. For more information about the church, visit us online at www.redemptionhill.org. It's good to see you guys. My name is Robert. I'm one of the pastors here at Redemption Hill. and We're going to take our time together this morning as we go to God's Word. So if you've got your Bibles, open them up to Psalm 119. Psalm 119. This is going to be our last week with Psalm 119. And this morning, we are going to end our time in Psalm 119 where the psalmist actually begins. So Psalm 119, we're going to spend some time briefly in the first stanza. And from that first stanza, consider some some key words from the stanza and from the rest of the psalm that we've seen in the last few weeks. It's going to be a little unorthodox this morning. I wanted to do a a normal Psalm 119 sermon. Uh, I just couldn't get myself to do it, no matter how hard I tried all week. So it's going to be a little unorthodox, but we're going to trust God to guide us through it. So Psalm 119, if you've got it open, let's start in verse 1. Let's hear the psalmist, and then we'll, we'll spend some time in it together. Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with their whole heart, who also do no wrong but walk in his ways. You have commanded your precepts to be kept diligently. Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. Then I shall not be put to shame. Having my eyes fixed on all of your commandments, I will praise you with an upright heart when I learn your righteous rules. I will keep your statutes. Do not utterly forsake me. Let me pray for us and then we're going to spend some time in this. God, we need you this morning to open up our ears and open up our eyes to see your glory this morning and hear your voice in your word. This morning we ask that you can do that which only you can do and you can do it in Jesus' lovely and perfect name. Amen. What do we actually mean when we're talking with someone and we tell them to have a blessed day? What do we actually mean by that, right? When we're talking to someone and we're getting ready to depart, we say, hey, be blessed. What is it that we actually have in mind? Growing up in the South, my entire life, um, I actually knew sometimes what people meant when they said, bless your heart. Sometimes it was sincere. Sometimes it was a little passive aggressive. But I, at least I think I knew what they meant. But these days, I think we have a unhealthy, if not funny or confusing relationship with the word blessed. And what do we actually mean when we pray that someone be blessed? When we describe our situation as blessed, For those of you that are far more technologically savvy than I am, when you hashtag something, hashtag blessed. What is it you actually mean? I mean, culturally, I I tend to think that whenever we're hashtag blessing something or 
telling someone to have a blessed day. We, we have in our mind some version of them being prosperous or successful in what they're going about doing. Prosperous or successful in however our, our group, our, our tribe uh, defines that or depicts that, whatever that may look like, right? And the church is not exempt or immune from that. We're equally as included, right? We're familiar with the language around here of the prosperity gospel, but I would argue that there is a soft prosperity gospel that's acceptable and thriving in the church in America today that gives shape to what we mean when we talk about being blessed. Came across an article this week by a pastor named Eric Raymond writing about this, and, and he said this soft version is not so loud and ostentatious as the other. Like, it's easy to look at the, the other that we label and, and say, well, that's not what I think or what I believe, right? Raymond says this other this soft version is more mainstream, more polished, dare I say more American, right? If you work hard for God, then God should work hard for you, right? Goes on to say this soft version undermines our understanding and application of the gospel, and the effect is cataclysmic. Like a computer virus, he says, it drains our vitality. And he goes on to say, you know what the worst part of it is? We may not even recognize that we've been affected by it. Many of us, he says, have been unwittingly lulled to sleep by a prosperity, a thought of it. In its subtlety, this soft prosperity gospel wears the uniform of honor, happiness, and achievement. All good things in our context, but not necessarily implications of the gospel. But what we might call hashtag blessed. And so as I thought about it, as we open up Psalm 119 this morning for the last time, and, and even as you open up the Psalter, the beginning of the Psalms itself with Psalm 1, we are immediately confronted with the language of blessed are. And if we're not careful, our minds will read that and begin to translate that into the blessed that we have in mind. Whatever that success or prosperity or well-being is as we tend to define it, right? And I've had to wrestle with maybe, maybe that word doesn't mean what we think it means. One of our Diego Montoya moments, right? And the first clue that it might not mean what we or our tribe might think it means is simply this. Try explaining the American church's version of blessed to an Afghan Christian. You'll be left with the conclusion, if you take it to its logical end, that maybe we're just more blessed and favored by God than they are. Doesn't work. Maybe it doesn't mean what we think it means, though. So to a Hebrew, and they would hear the psalm and read the psalm, the word that we translate blessed, it actually does mean happy. It means deeply, like deep-seated contentment. 
but it carries a weight with it that's hard to translate. It carries this idea of real happiness and contentment, but not in short term or maybe even shallow pleasures or success. It carries this idea of a deep happiness and a deep satisfaction and contentment in relation to knowing the smile of God. And when you come to Psalm 119 and and even Psalm 1, as we'll, we'll see how they fit together in just a minute, you find that this blessed, as the Psalms begin, is actually in the plural form. And when the psalmist writes this way, it's for an added emphasis, right? He's emphasizing what he's saying. It's as though you could read it, oh, how wonderfully satisfied, deeply contented one can be in heart and soul when. And 119 goes on to say, the way is blameless. You walk in the law of the Lord. You keep his testimonies. I remember his testimonies, his testifying to what reality in life really is. When you keep his testimonies, when you seek him with your whole heart, verse 2 says, those who do no wrong, but walk in his ways. Walking in his ways, in his laws, keeping his testimonies, seeking him with your whole heart. If you put your finger there in Psalm 119 and flip back to the beginning of the book of Psalms. Psalm 1. I want you to see how these two things tend to go together, say the same things in similar and different ways and Love to find out in eternity if they were written by God's inspiration by the same writer, but we don't know who wrote Psalm 119. Psalm 1 begins this way. Here's our word again. Blessed is the man, the one, the woman, who walks, not in the counsel of the wicked. So it's back to how we walk. You remember when we began Psalm 119 a few weeks ago, we talked about the, the primary focus of the psalmist when he was considering our life was our way, our walk, our path, the way in which we lived. Blessed, the author of Psalm 1 says, is the one who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But here we go. Blessed, you could say, is the one who, whose delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. Writer of Psalm 119 is in total agreement with the writer of Psalm 1, even using much of the same language. Some 28 times, I'll, I'll go encourage you to read it this week, give or take based on your translation that you read. Some 28 times at least in Psalm 119. The writer talks about how God's word, his ways, his testimonies, his statutes, his commandments, his law are his delight. Just an example, verse 14, in the way of your testimonies, I delight as much as in all riches. In verse 16, he says, I will delight in your statutes. In verse 24, your testimonies are my delight. They're my counselors. In verse 35, he says, lead me in the path of your commandments for I delight in them. 
Verse 47, he says, I find my delight in your commandments, which I love. And on and on and on he goes throughout the entirety of the psalm. And at least seven times, depending again on the translation that you use when you read the Bible. The author of Psalm 119 will talk about how his delight is found in meditating on God's word. I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways in verse 15. So in verse 14, the way of your testimonies I delight in as much as all riches. In verse 15, I'll meditate on them, fix my eyes on them. In verse 23, even though princes plot against me, I will meditate on your statutes. Verse 48, he says the same thing. Verse 78, I will meditate on your precepts. Same thing. Verse 97, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Verse 148, my eyes are awake before the watches of the night that I may meditate on your promise. It's my delight. It is the delight of my heart. On it, my mind and my heart delight to meditate. Blessed in the way in which I walk. The way that reality is being reframed. The way that I am able to walk in and through, the psalmist has told us, affliction like we saw last week. The author of Psalm 1 will talk about the fruit that comes from such delight. This way, in verse 3. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers as God defines it in relation to the fruit that he's been bearing. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Blessed looks like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season and its leaf doesn't wither. Isaiah, in Isaiah 61, 13, talked about God's people growing into being oaks of righteousness. A picture, it's always captivated my mind, and I've wondered how much he's had in his mind as he meditated on the Psalms. And as I begin to think about all that we've seen in Psalm 119, I've been reading it over and over again, I had to think to myself, who wouldn't rather be an oak than weightless chaff. And what the psalmist has been helping us to see the last few weeks is that the word of God is the river of reality by which saints, young and old, are made into oaks of righteousness. Blessed. That's what I want in on. Does anybody else want in on that, right? Well, there's a few key words we've already looked at that both psalmists use consistently over and over again that'll help guide us. And it's what I want us to consider with the time we've got left. Delighting, treasuring, meditating. Do you 
delight in God's word? Better yet, I will ask it of ourselves. Do I delight in God's word? What's that even look like? Dallas Willard, philosophy professor at USC, wonderful writer, he was reflecting on the use of the word delight in the Psalms. And he said this, what the psalmist is saying is that he loves it. He's thrilled by it. He can't keep his mind off of it. He thinks it's beautiful, strong, wise, an incredible gift of God's mercy and grace. Because of what it is, he therefore dwells upon it day and night, turning it over in his mind and speaking it to himself. He does not do this to please God, but because God's word, his law pleases him. It's where his whole being is oriented, and the result is flourishing. Delight is a hard concept sometimes to to put words behind because it's so visceral. But what can you not stop thinking about? What kind of things do you delight in? What's so captivated your heart and your mind that it's always there and always present? That's so sweet to you, you can almost taste it. That's what the psalmist said in Psalm 119, verse 103. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Are his ways sweet to you? Do they taste this good to your soul? I love how how some writers in trying to capture what it is to delight. And again, it's so visceral, it's hard to give words to it. They'll often talk about savoring. Do you savor his ways, his testimonies? Think about that tastiest piece of chocolate. You know how good it's going to be. And so you don't just put it in your mouth, chew it up, swallow it, and go on. No, you let it sit. And you let it melt. You roll it over in your mouth, and you're tasting all of it. You don't want to waste it. You want to rush through it. It's so, it is so savory, delightful. But you take it in. What do you delight in? I'll tell you what, as much struggle as I've had trying to figure out how to put language to this in a way that I can capture it, even from my own heart, nonetheless yours, I've found another word that the psalmist uses here closely to it that, that helps me a lot, and that's, that's the word treasure. In Psalm 119, verse 11, the psalmist says, I have stored up, you could translate that treasured, your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. They literally stored up. It's one word in Hebrew, and it means to hide or to store, right? Because back in the day before banks and bank boxes, that is what you did to things that were priceless to you and precious to you. You had to hide them or store them up. You literally had to treasure them. You had to take what was priceless and precious to you and put it away. And the psalmist says, your word is so precious.
precious and so priceless to me for who you are and what it is that I've literally treasured it. I've put it in my heart. I've taken it in. There are lots of things my, my heart wants to treasure. To see as necessary and precious and priceless. Do I delight and savor and treasure God's words and ways in this way? Delight, treasure, savor. Notice that the psalmist doesn't say, I, I, I know your word, I can repeat your word, and I've filed it away in my mind somewhere. You see, we're not filing systems. That's not how God made us. We've talked about this over and over. If you've been with us for a while, we're not driven primarily through life by what we know in our minds, but by what we love. What we love and what aflames the affections of our heart and our soul gives the energy, gives the gas to the way that we live. What we go after. Right, think about it this way. In Psalm 119, verse 92, the psalmist says, if your law had not been my delight, if it had not been the thing that I savored, if it had not been the thing that I treasured, if it had not been my delight, I would have perished in my affliction. Whatever that affliction may have been, whatever that humbling may have been, whatever that trouble may have been, if, if your word had not been that which was most precious and priceless to me, that I delighted in and savored and treasured, I would have had a different end to the story. See, Psalm 119, and we, we've only had a few weeks to go through this, and we haven't been able to see all of it, but I would encourage you to take your time and just read through it. It, it helps us to see that we don't come to God's word. We don't come to scripture in order to just learn things. We engage with God and his word in order to become a certain type of person. In order to have the loves, the affections, the desires of our hearts changed. We come in order to be well planted, well rooted. Oaks of righteousness. How? Well, it's because God's word, his ways, his testimonies, his statutes, his commands, they bring us to him. They bring us to his heart. They bring us to his son. We come to see that he's not an idea to be pondered on information to be sorted away, but a person to be loved. The supreme treasure to be supremely treasured. To be known, delighted in, savored. Coming to God's word to keep company with him is the very thing in God's economy and in God's hands leads us to becoming increasingly like his son. Paul says it this way in his letter to the church in Corinth, 2 Corinthians 
probably familiar with it, beholding the glory of the Lord, we are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. The glory of the Lord, his son, Jesus, the true oak of righteousness, the one whose way, like the psalmist says, is truly blameless, who has kept God's testimonies, who does no wrong, who is steadfast in keeping the statutes. The aim of delighting and treasuring God's word is not to memorize and store up bits of information, but to keep company with him, to keep company with his son, to see his glory, to taste his mercy, to know him and become increasingly like him. Oaks of righteousness that don't wither, that bear fruit in and out of season. That's what it is to be blessed. Blessed according to his kingdom and the economy of his ways. Blessed redefined now by a crucified and risen Savior. That's what it actually looks like. Altogether different from the soft idea of prosperity and blessing that, that we so often get captivated by and champion. Rather, we hear Jesus in Matthew chapter 5 use this same word in his famous Sermon on the Mount, and we find that in his kingdom and in his economy, hashtag blessed looks like being poor in spirit. Meek, thirsty for righteousness, merciful, pure in heart, peacemaking, suffering, affliction for his sake. One writer said the ultimate goal of coming to God's word and reading his word, it, it doesn't terminate on the invisible satisfaction of your heart, right? But on visible transformation of God's people in paths of righteousness and love. That's blessed. And that's not defined by or constrained by wealth or health. The key is the psalmist has helped us to see in his language over and over that we see even in the writings of the New Testament, I love the way Peter puts it, is this. Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 2 and 3, like newborn infants long for, you could easily put in that place desire, delight in, the pure spiritual milk, and some of your translations may say of the word, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed, or better translated, since you have tasted that the Lord is good. So growing up spiritually, maturing, into well-rooted, well-planted oaks of righteousness, blessed, is fed by the word through which we delight, treasure, and savor the glory of God in Jesus. And part of the, the gift of God's grace to us in salvation and in the new creation that we are is now new taste buds. We begin to taste and have a taste for him and his ways. His testimonies, his statutes, his delights. 
But I love the honesty and the reality of the Bible here. Peter says is directing us to long for those things. Right? We, we've been given by God's grace in salvation a taste for them. But we have to be reminded to desire it. To long for it. Because our desires and our, our longings are, are so fickle. So easily impacted, so easily shifted, so vulnerable. So Peter's even reminding us how essential it is to becoming who God is making us, that he has to remind us to long for the very thing that God has given us, that we've already tasted through the word. I, I love, I think it was John Stott who said, if the word of God is powerful enough to create new Christians, then the word of God is powerful enough to create the longing and languishing Christian hearts. The longing for the pure word of God by which we grow and mature. He's gracious enough and strong enough to give the very thing he requires. We have to feed this longing. The psalmist, he loves to talk about this. He talks about this feeding, and he talks about it in one way in particular. We've already talked about it through the habit and the rhythm of meditating on God's word. Most often, he speaks about this than any other thing like that in Psalm 119. At least seven times, he talks about it. And I know when we talk about meditating on God's word, for some people, depending upon your background or, or where you might come from or things you might have been involved in or exposed to growing up, you're already bristling. Because just the word meditating or meditation has in your mind this Eastern idea of emptying ourselves and emptying our mind of all of our thoughts and all of our feelings in order to find within ourselves somewhere all that we actually need to self-actualize and realize who we really are, right? That's not what is in mind for a Hebrew, an Israelite, when this was written. To an Israelite... Meditation isn't about emptying your mind to find all you need somewhere within yourself and self-actualize, right? To a Hebrew, it's about filling your mind with the thoughts of God. Filling your mind with his thoughts and his ways. Literally, the word meditate, it means to growl over God's word. And I wish I had a better word. Some of you might know the better word, but when they talk about growling, what they have in mind, and I think it's Isaiah or Jeremiah, I can't remember, one of the prophets uses the same word. And he's speaking about a lion over his prey. And so if you've got a dog at home, it's probably the closest thing, right? I don't think any of you have lions at home, but if you have a dog at home, you know what it is to, to give that dog like his most favorite bone or most favorite treat, Right? We have a dog at home, and we'll come back, and we used to come back with these little, like, uh, water buffalo horns, you know? And she would get it, and she would just, like, walk around the house for, like, 10 minutes because she didn't know what she was going to do with it quite yet. And when she finally settled down, she would chew on it, and she would just make these noises. Like, I have no idea where that's coming from. It's not a purr. It's not like an angry growl. It's some kind of deeply satisfying, contented noise that was welling up from her coming out as she just gnawed on this thing and moved it all around, right? That's what the word means, to just sit with it, 
to chew on it, to take it in, to roll it around, to move it around. Eugene Peterson had a wonderful book called Eat This Book, talking about the Bible. And Peterson said, Christians feed on God's word. Christians don't simply learn or study or use scripture. I love this. We assimilate it. We take it into our lives in such a way that it gets metabolized into love in Jesus' name. Hands raised in adoration of the Father. Feet washed and company kept with his son. We don't just read it. We don't just memorize it. We don't just study it. We don't just dissect it. We don't just classify it. Assimilate it. You take it in. You know, if you're my age, you grew up with the old saying, you are what you eat, right? It's actually not true. You are what your body can assimilate. If your body can't take in all those veggies that you're eating all the time and break them down into their constituent parts and attach those nutrients where they need to go, it doesn't matter. You are what you assimilate. And Peter's saying for healthy, maturing followers of Jesus, we eat this word as we meditate on it, satisfied by it growling over it that it gets assimilated metabolized into our very souls right that begins to reflect itself in worship and adoration feet washed and company kept Jesus sit with it roll it over until it begins to inflame our hearts which begins to inevitably direct our steps. Right, right? Take just for an example, seeing Jesus together that we, that we do collectively. You, you get the, the directions each week, the verses, the chapters for the week each week on your worship guide. If you get one of the seeing Jesus together journals, this is the very thing that we're talking about when we're talking about this. In fact, as you were reminded earlier, we have a class on it tonight to go a little more into what we mean. But all it is is training wheels for assimilating God's word. It's a habit and a rhythm to help groove this kind of keeping company with God, keeping company with Jesus, meditating on his word, assimilating it into our hearts and lives. If you get it, you'll open the journal up and you'll look at it. You'll have the chapters that you're to read for that day, but here's what you do. You just sit with it and you take a deep breath and you get quiet for a minute and you breathe And you're asked to be honest with yourself. What emotions are you bringing into this? And be honest with God. Asking him to help you. As you begin to listen to his voice. And then you just take the chapter. And you read it slowly. You read it repetitively. Trusting that God by his Holy Spirit and your reading and listening is going to electrify something in it, a word, a phrase, something that God knows for you. It may not be anything for me, but for you, electrify. Something's going to come alive as you sit and you just listen. And as you do, you begin to just meditate, kind of guide you. Just meditate. Roll it over in your mind and heart. Listen to it. 
Think on it. Consider it. Be still with it. And then the guide will just kind of prompt you to take those meditations of your heart and reflect them back to God in prayer. What in that meditation might lead you to adore something, praise something about who God is? Might have led you to see something about yourself that you need to bring before the Lord in confession and repentance. Reminded you of something of God's grace and mercy to you in Jesus that you can celebrate and thank him for and and see very clearly a, a way in which you are to walk, that you can plead with him to empower you to move forward and to take those steps in. And you just enjoy him. Sit with him. Enjoy him and his voice. It's not a, a linear process, like step one, step two, step three, all the time. It's more like dancing. Once you kind of learn the pattern and learn the rhythm, it becomes a little more natural and you might move in and out of things, but it, it's like a cheat sheet, like training wheels, the journal. You go through it, and it's just helping to groove that pattern into your heart and into your rhythm. But we're listening. We're sitting with him. We're keeping company with him. We're not dissecting the words and dissecting the language and diagramming the sentences and picking it all apart. We're just listening. We're being with him. We're working to assimilate as we sit with his words into our heart and soul. Anybody in this room can do it. There isn't an age requirement, a height requirement, nothing like that. Anybody can do this. And I want to be clear, this is not studying the Bible, right? I think one of the hardest things for me when I talk about reading the word and even talking about seeing Jesus or anything like this is that as someone who, who, who speaks and teaches God's word regularly, I feel like sometimes people will hear me talk about reading the word and going away to read the word and you equate somehow you're listening to Jesus in those moments, in those mornings with what I do all week long, or in, in, which comes out in what I say on Sunday. Like, I can never figure out what that word meant in Hebrew in my sitting and listening with Jesus. I, how did he see that? I, I've never seen that before, and I've read the chapter for 10 years. I'm just not going to bother reading it. I'll just wait and listen on Sunday. I'll just pull up my favorite other preachers on Tuesday and Thursday to get me through the week. Now, I spend considerable amount of time throughout the week because it's the responsibility that you and the other elders have set me aside to do in order to study this, in order to do what we do on Sunday morning. That's not what I'm talking about here. I'm talking about just sitting with God, sitting with Jesus, listening to his word and allowing his Holy Spirit to help assimilate his word into our hearts on a day in and day out basis. It's a very different thing. So essential, which begs the question if it's so essential and so accessible, why don't we do it, right? Why don't I do it? Why do I have such trouble sometimes at this very same thing? Well, there's a, there's a few reasons. One is, is our palate for it, it is so vulnerable. Our palate for it, it can be so messed up so easily, right? Think about it this way. I'll give you a picture. The, the Pharisees were the Bible scholars of Jesus' day, right? The scribes and the Pharisees. 
No one knew more of the scriptures. No one knew the scriptures better. No one was able to quote as much or keep as many details of it as the scribes and the Pharisees. Yet Jesus had some very choice words for them, right? Jesus would say things to them like, have you not read your scriptures? Right? That would be like someone going up to LeBron and saying, have you never shot a basketball? Right? These are the guys who were the masters of the scriptures. And at least six times in the gospel, Jesus says something like that. Have you actually not read them? Implying that they didn't know what they were talking about. And the problem was their palate for God's word was messed up. Jesus would say to them, Matthew chapter 23, you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside you're full of greed and self-indulgence. In Luke 16, 14, Luke says the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, they heard all the things that Jesus was teaching and they ridiculed him. Their palate was off. What they longed for, tasted sweet to them, was off. He'd also say to the Pharisees, you, you do all your deeds. You do all these things. You keep all these rules in order to be seen by everyone else. You love the places of honor and the best seats. What you desire, what you long for, what you savor, it, it was a reputation. It was related to other people's opinions of you. Right? Their tastes were for what they could have. Their tastes were for how they would be seen. The greatest obstacle, one writer said, to reading the Bible is not intellectual. The greatest obstacle isn't even skill. Nothing creates as great a barrier to seeing as a heart that loves other things more than Jesus himself. Our palates can get shifted. We can also, let's just be really honest, be so easily distracted from it. I mean, we're addicted to distraction, right? We quite literally, sociologists and scientists are telling us, crave at a biological level the hormone releases from all the swipes on the phone, all the refresh on the email, all the notifications that we get, all the likes, all the hearts, all the whatever it may be. So much so they're writing right now that our addiction to those things biologically and chemically may prove in the long run to be more damaging and stronger than even heroin. And those devices that we become so addicted to cause so much distraction that it's quite literally changed the way that you and I even read. If you even read anymore. Which again, the statistics will go on to prove we don't read very much anymore. One writer, not within the church, sociologist writing about these things, he said books. You can think about the Bible in this way. Books in ways that are different than visual art or music or the radio, they force us to walk through someone else's thoughts. There's a slowness and a deliberateness 
a forced reflection that's required by the very medium that's unique. Books recreate someone else's thoughts in our own minds. Books force us to let someone else's thoughts inhabit our minds completely. Is that not the very thing that we are to desire and want from God and his word? For his thoughts to inhabit us so completely? That's what we need. That's what we want. So easily distracted. If there's anything that I hope Psalm 119 over the last few weeks and as you go on and read it yourself will will help you to see is that in all of this, we need help. We need real help. And as we're reminded in the psalm and throughout the entirety of the scriptures, God in his kindness and graciousness has given us the helper for it. The psalmist will pray in verse 18, open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. We need help. And God in his kindness and grace has given us a helper. Jesus would even tell his disciples that when the helper comes, whom I'm going to send to you from the Father, the spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. Paul reminds the church in 2 Corinthians 4, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus. Twice in Luke chapter 24, if you read it and seeing Jesus this week on Thursday, in Luke chapter 24, it says that Jesus opened the minds of his disciples to understand the scriptures. All I'm trying to say, and the psalmist helps us to see over and over again, is that there is, by God's grace, supernatural enabling at hand for us to help us to see and enjoy and savor Jesus in his word. He gives us the very thing we need in order to long for, desire, delight, and savor and treasure what we need most. Kindness. The testimony and the story of the psalmist is simply this, if we're going to boil it down. If you and I are not walking along a daily strategy of feeding on the Word of God, what is the alternative strategy we have for becoming oaks of righteousness? Living reflections of the oak of righteousness. Those are Peter's words. Growing up into salvation. We need, we need well-planted, well-rooted oaks. We have plenty of grass that comes and goes, that withers and fades We need well-rooted oaks that delight and treasure Jesus. Whose lives are lived happy in the smile of God. And so that's why we pray. And here's how I'll close us this morning as I pray for us. 
as the psalmist does. Holy Spirit, guide us into the truth. Incline our ears and our hearts and our eyes to your testimonies. Open our eyes to see Jesus in his word. Help us to behold his glory. Move us beyond being familiar with words, knowing words, and help us to see you. May your words and your ways and your statutes and your testimonies, may they be the delight of our hearts. May we long for them. Renew our our tastes, our palate for you that it might transform, that it might move us in. May it transform the way that we live, the way that we love, the way that we sacrifice, the way that we serve, the way that we think, the way that we celebrate, the way that we understand according to your glory and your kingdom what it is to be blessed. We ask that you would do this in Jesus' good name. For his glory, for our deepest joy. Amen. You've been listening to a message by Robert Green, given at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information on the church and to hear other messages, please visit us online at www.redemptionhill.org.